Welcome to the Core Women Podcast. My name is Dr. Summer Watson. I'm a doctor of psychology, podcaster, published author, coach, producer of documentary empowerment films, and empowerment seminars. This podcast is a special place for the hearts and souls of women. It is a place where women share their journeys, strength, resiliency, strategy, and passions. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Erin Hazacostas, who is the CEO of Be Authentic Inc., is a career coach, a speaker to include a TEDx podcast co-host of Because with Erin and Nicole, is the author of You Do Youish, an executive guide to authentic success, and she is an edutainer as well. What an incredible resume. We have so much to talk about, so let's dive right into this, Erin, and welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Summer. Absolutely, it's a pleasure. So Erin, before we jump into your professional journey, can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey, where you grew up, your interests, and how those interests developed. Yeah, so I'm actually a small town girl. I grew up in northern Michigan in the town of about, you know, a thousand people, um, very far from a highway, let alone industry, corporate. My parents were both teachers, so my upbringing was, you know, a little bit on the naive side, but I always, I remember when I was looking for colleges, you know, the first thing I knew very quickly, because one of the kind of decision points is, do I want to go small or big? And I knew I wanted to go big. So I only wanted to look at, you know, big universities, 30,000 plus. I, not that I didn't like my, I had a, you know, amazing upbringing, so much blessings, but I always kind of felt this wanting to break free. And, and I think a lot of it was, um, I'm, I'm just uh, somebody that loves a challenge. I'm just, I want to figure something out new. And um, yeah, so I, I went to Western Michigan University in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And like most people started as, a, you know, something I never ended up. I was good at math. So I started in engineering, paper engineering. I went to my first paper engineering plant. That'll make you run quick. Between that and getting my first C ever, I was like, this isn't meant for me. And one day, my my sophomore year, I was still taking math classes, but I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. Um, my roommate came home from business school. She was a year older and she was so freaking excited. She said, oh my God, Aaron, I have found the career for you. It's high pay. It's low stress you just have to be good at math. And you're like the only person I know that's good at math. It's called an actuary. And I was, you know, now this was back in 1995, right? So there was no like, go to the Google, what's an, like no freaking clue, what I, you know, went to the library, got this in true actuarial um, for, and for your listeners who don't know what an, an actuary is sort of a, a math data analysis person that typically works at like an insurance company. Um, and I, you know, I, I got this brochure, which was such typical actuarial fashion. It was like, I remember it was like four by six. It was like gray cover and oh my God, Summer, I know, you know <laughs> I remember this, right? Like all that was in it was a list of, it have company name at physical address right, and phone number, right? Yes. right? The website <laughs> yes. and, and the trifold. Yeah. And then, then that was like your clue. Like, okay, I'm going to figure out what an actuary is by like, I guess, calling these companies. And I, I remember the, 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 the trend that became obvious was these are all like a lot of them are in Connecticut. And that was because, you know, insurance is a, is big in Connecticut. And so right. long story short, I made my way. Um, I, I kind of, there's kind of swindled them a little bit. I told some little white lies, how I was going to be in Connecticut and they should interview me anyway. 
And so eventually I got Aetna to hire me into their actuarial internship program. Nice. And this is kind of relevant to the, to, to kind of everything I talk about. It was so interesting. So I go, I'm super excited. I actually thought I was going to be working for free. I was paid like 12, $13 an hour, which back then was like big deal. And a couple months in, we were, they, we were doing some professional development, like every Friday, they'd have a speaker or something. And one day they, they took all 12 interns into this huge like ballroom in, in a local hotel to do a Myers-Briggs assessment. So picture us, you know, first of all, like in a room that was way bigger than what we needed. It was like 12 interns and a few uh, full-time employees. And they did the whole Myers-Briggs assessment. And then as good actuaries do, they got excited to go, you know, compile the right. Results. We the data results like <laughs> yeah. this is, you know this is like my first personality test yeah and I'll never forget it summer they then they're like in the ballroom there's like this huge gigantic screen and so they say okay we're going to bring up the results and it was like this this matrix with these quadrants and I look up and all I remember seeing is I was sitting in a quadrant all by myself wow really and it's sort of dramatic, but, it, but obviously what I realized now, I also, not only was I not quite the right personality as most actuaries are, I also couldn't pass an actuarial exam, which is part of the requirement. It's a, you know, exam you have to take to become a full-fledged actuary. I, I took like six of them and I failed six of them. So, um, so long story short, you know, that, that, um, that was a big failure. Um, but got me, you know, sort of rolling in my career and, and have no regrets. And, and to this day now, you know, I'm, I focus on what puts me in that box is my superpower. Right. Absolutely. And I, like you, wanted to get away and go to a big school as well, because I came from a little beach town in California. And you might think, oh, California, they're all like, you know, busy and big towns and what. No, small town. Mm-hmm. And so how was it for you? Because I know for me, going to a large school, um, like Berkeley, I kind of lost my space in my way. So did you find your space really quickly in your groups? Yeah, I mean, one, from a practical perspective, my sophomore year, I, I joined a sorority and that sort of helped create this, you know, Venn diagram, this circle within a circle. You, you started to kind of shrink the, the, the university a little bit. Um, and so that definitely um, joined my tribe. And interestingly, some of my best friends after school are girls from other sororities there's three or four of us and we 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 bonded later in our college career no but i um i quite enjoyed it i i it was sort of like again it went back to the challenge that i you know some of the challenges i had earlier in life this was different right i had to figure out things i never figured out and as i got later in my life i've realized that that is literally the single biggest driver to what makes me happy what makes me not be a sloth um i just i thrive on those challenges yeah absolutely i completely agree with you that freshman year was that transitional year for me but like you i joined a sorority as well mm-hmm. but i was that kind of person who just kind of dabbled in like a lot of different things that freshman year and then found my tribe so yeah you were CEO before you developed your own business. Why did you take that jump from corporate CEO into entrepreneurship? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I failed miserably in the actuarial career. Uh, but the good news is I was a bit at a big company um, at Aetna, one of the large health insurers here in the U.S. And it was the kind of place that, you know, roughly 40, 50,000 people at the time 
uh, you could find different roles. And one of the things for your listeners is, you know, I always took a role that made me 50% uncomfortable, which is one of the rules that I preach and I teach. You use the 50% rule. And if you are constantly thinking, okay, what next move can make me take, I mean, good news, take half of what I have, either the product knowledge I have, the relationships, a competency, but half of it roughly is just totally in the unknown space. And so I did that several times. And then, yes, um, as you mentioned, I eventually became the CEO of one of Aetna's subsidiary companies, a company called Payflex. So we had about a thousand employees, managed um, financial healthcare accounts. And, you know, that's where I think my story is sort of unique in that not everybody, but a lot of people that make this switch, especially sort of the corporate to entrepreneur, there is an action forcing event that's usually something negative, right? Whether they, you know, got let go, they had a death in the family, they, you know, whatever it was, it was very negative. For me, I would became CEO and actually turned around the company. It was really, really struggling, um, led a, a really quite massive turnaround financially, culturally. And once I did that, I I had learned this whole, I need to be uncomfortable. And, you know, I knew what the itch felt like, right? And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know the itch, right? That's just when, you know, an itch usually, it it, it has two sides to it. You know, I always had like one voice that was like, okay, you're itching for something new. And then you have, of course, that one on your other shoulder that's like, Jesus Christ, can't you just freaking be like your job is easy. Like, do you really want to switch? And then you'll be bitching and moaning about all the, like, can't you just enjoy it? But because that had happened to me on different scale all along the way, each time it happened, I succumbed to the, to the itch more freely. And when I got that itch after running the company for three years, um, you know, they, they, I knew there was an itch of starting to talk to sort of sponsors of mine. In fact, one of my major sponsors is now as of, well, as of next month, officially will be the CEO of CVS Corporation, which, you know, is a Fortune 5 company. And um, I remember sitting in her office and she was like, well, you know, what about this? What about this? And it almost felt like when you look at a menu and you're trying to figure out what you want to order off the menu and you almost are kind of tasting like in your head. Do I feel like, you know, right. Right. And I was kind of doing that and she's throwing out all these other sort of executive positions and it was like nothing on the menu just tasted right. And I, I realized that that itch I had was different. And, um, I didn't tell a lot of people kind of what was going on in my head. Of course, I was thinking like, I think I need to leave. I don't know what it is. I, you know, it wasn't all just, I needed to be an entrepreneur. Some of it was, do I go, uh, be a CEO for a startup healthcare company and kind of learn that world and the VC world or do, you know, I had these different buckets. Um, but I was sit- I went on a business trip and I was sitting on a plane and with this really nice woman, we struck up a conversation and she had actually been in corporate for about 10 years. And then the last 20 years she had run her own business. Um, and so I was asking her all these questions and she was so happy. And after asking all these questions, I, um, I remember stopping and saying, you know, I'm sorry, I'm asking you all these questions. I'm doing it because I'm kind of thinking about going and doing my own thing. And it was, it was honestly one of the first times I had actually like verbalized it, like said it out loud. So as soon as I said it out loud, I was like, oh shit, that sounds really stupid. Cause then I started processing like right now when my, my reputation's at an all time high, I could be getting that next big job. I'm 
know, I was 44 at the time. I wasn't, you know, super old. And, um, and so I kind of pulled back. I said, but that would be really stupid right now because of X, Y, Z. And she just looked at me and she just like that said, who says this is the top? And that was one of the most profound things that was said to me. And it's, it, it's cliche, but you know, when you hear that, right, you can like the metaphor immediately came to life and I could see, and I'm like, oh my God, I've never hiked to those other mountains. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the terrain is. I don't know what it takes. I don't know what the view is. And, you know, that's when, you know, I finally got snapped out of that trance that I think a lot of us in the corporate world do that trance of there is not that I was always like, I want to constantly climb. Like, you know, I, I, I saw it as, as shades, but out of that trance that there is only kind of one definition or one path for that success. And so that was the moment when I was like, the only way that the, the itch gets scratched is if I go out and do something very different. And then, and that's what sort of led me, led me out of corporate and into entrepreneurship. Wow. That is so cool that she was able to say that to you. And I think that we've been conditioned to a certain degree as we grew up, even in education, what we were taught by our parents, by what we, what was modeled, you know, you go into a job, you want to get tenure, you want to go up that ladder, you want to stay at a job for several years. And then when you change that whole paradigm or structure or your journey, it's like, wow, okay, I'm really stepping out of the box. Just like you said, we, even when you began, it was so traditional to find one of those trifolds with company name, the address, the phone numbers. That's what it was. Everything had its place. Everything had this box. And yet here you were looking up going, I don't even fit in the box. I'm, I'm over here by myself. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, here you were. And so my next question, you kind of answered some of these things through your journey of going from corporate to entrepreneurship, but what were the definitive personal indicators that started popping up and waking you up to wanting something else that was a little deeper, more meaningful, and that aligned with your values and living in your authenticity? Yeah. No, oh, well, that's, yeah, that was, um, you know, when I announced my retirement, I technically had been at the company long enough that even though I was 44 years old, I technically retired. And when I announced it, I did not know what I was going to do. I had these different buckets I was considering. And um, I remember, you know, I heard the word authentic a million times, right? But like, as soon as I did that, the the cards, the emails, the conversations, the through line was like, over half the people kept saying, we're going to miss your authentic leadership. And it just kept coming up and coming up and coming up. And when I left, you know, one of the buckets I considered was career and leadership development. But one thing to know about me is normal is my kryptonite. Uh, doing anything normal, and it's not to be showy, it's not to be, it's just, I hate doing normal. And so when I thought about that bucket, I was like, well, that's like a dime a dozen, right? There's a bazillion executive coaches and a million leadership companies. And I'll get bored quickly. I'm a businesswoman. Like I'll get, I'll get, I'll miss the business side of things. And so I kind of dismissed it. But um, as I was actually, I was working on another kind of the software company idea I had. Um, I started blogging. I was like, oh, but at least, you know, I've got all these pent up thoughts and ideas. 
that I only could, you know, sort of get out so much within the corporate space. I'll, I'll blog about it. And, and as I started to write, which is so powerful, as you know, as, as being a writer, um, I started to realize that not only did people call me authentic, but there was this thing that pissed me off, right? And there's nothing better than founding a business on something that pisses you off. <laughs> and what pissed me off was that the corporate world is just so fake and there's so much unhappiness and there's still so much, you know, the red tape, you call it what it is, BS, red tape, et cetera. And if I were younger, I would have probably said, oh, but that's just how it is. But because I had become an executive and had results and had not succumbed to that, as I said, people call me authentic. Well, it's for a reason. Like I bucked the norm. Like I didn't do a lot of the BS. I, you know, it was different. And I was like, wait, so I've proved that it doesn't have to be that way to get results. So why are we letting this, this work world just spiral into like this, this whole, you know, why is it not getting any better? So what hit me and was something that I preach all the time and I talk about in my TED talk is, you know, this thing that comes up over and over again. And I think is really good for your listeners because I've applied it in so many situations, but it's this, like you shouldn't not do something because you hate the way it was done before. You can actually do it your own way. So as I thought about what broke my heart or pissed me off and then just like being like, oh, but there's so many people doing it. I'm like, well, obviously something's missing because it's still a crappy world and I'm, you know, and so there has to be a gap. And that's the moment when I, you know, sort of having heard all of those words authentic, had really realized what pissed me off and realizing most importantly that I had found a way to have this big career without kind of compromising everything else, um, whether that was my family life or all the way to who I was, that um, I really was like, that's, that's what I'm put on this earth to do. Um, I need to go out and create a movement and find a way to, to help individuals, help companies. And, and basically, like my mission is big. It's really to eradicate all the BS in the corporate workplace. And, um, and then we'll have a more diverse world. We'll have a happier world. And quite frankly, we'll all be making more money. That's a big movement. That's huge. Because if you've worked in corporate, both nonprofit, for-profit, you name it, there's a lot of BS out there. A lot of BS, but here's the best thing and why I think I can accomplish, you know, what I'm setting out to do. And obviously nothing's going to ever be perfect, but if I thought it was something that I had to somehow, some way build an army and we had to touch every person, I couldn't do it. But the very best thing about authenticity, and I talk a lot about Authenticity isn't just a permission. It, it actually, the, the Greek origin of the word is authentikos, which means to be genuine. It means to be original and it needs, means to be authoritative. So we can talk about it a little bit in my framework that I have in my book, but I talk about authenticity actually as really the superpower versus this permission. Um, but the best part about when you kind of unleash and unlock authenticity is that it is super contagious. It's, super, it's not like a leadership trait where you're like, oh, I should have to do that because it's the right thing to do. It's like when you see somebody being authentic, whether it's, oh, their resume, you read it, it's much, much more like fresh and human engaging, or they're in a meeting and they tell a story instead of like your boring, like intro or what, what, you know, I was talking about the out of office, like I just started changing all my out of offices, like simple things like that, where I talk like a human. Once you start to do it, people are like, oh yeah, that's really refreshing. And that gave me permit. And that like, it just, 
So I really do think that there is a network effect. There is um, a contagion that comes with authenticity. It's going to be a take a shit ton of work and, and people and an army to 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 create the movement. But I, the reason I believe in it is because that I think it is it's so contagious. I think you're absolutely onto something here. Authenticity isn't a principle. It is a superpower and it takes courage. It takes courage to be in your authenticity, to live that authenticity, even to go back to the foundation of knowing what being authentic is. Mm -hmm. And I think when, and this is something I write about and talk about quite a bit, is knowing your own values and understanding what those are and living in congruence with those. And one of those things is when you do start being authentic and living in congruence with those, it's just, as you said, very contagious. Mm -hmm. So it's not even like you have to go out and do anything. It's like you're reaching people just by being. Yeah. And it's addicting. So it's contagious and it's addicting. So everything I teach my students and I teach in the book, et cetera, is you just start with experiments. And the reason you keep doing it is because for example, let's say, you know, nobody's listening to you in your weekly status meeting and it's getting annoying. You know, people are like multitasking and you decide to use one of my authenticity principles and you, you start the meeting with a story and everybody is like paying attention. They're more engaged in the meeting. Like that's addicting. You're going to do it again. Right. Like, because yeah. you're like, wait a minute, that was really fun. I saw people smile. I saw people put down their phones or their spreadsheets. Um, uh, so it's it's contagious and it's addicting and it, you little experiments and once you start to see those results it sort of propels itself too. Absolutely. So why don't we just touch on your book a bit about you do youish an executive guide to authentic success. So tell us a little bit about this book. You do youish is um, really about teaching people that it's not just about being authentic and giving you this permission, but that you can use authenticity kind of as your secret weapon to success. What I realized along the way, Summer, was as I looked back, like the reason I kept having all this success and having it without the martyrdom and the moving my family and getting divorced and all, you know, all the sacrifices and compromises was that I kind of subconsciously now used authenticity as my main secret weapon to connecting with people, to getting people that want to come work, right? Like that's part of being a good leader is winning the talent war. And so what I teach in you do you ish and the ish, you know, part of it is because so many people misperceive authenticity, just as this being yourself. And in the workplace, it's not just that. And it's not that I'm saying, you know, be a fake, like I'm not talking about sort of some sort of weird oxymoron, but you can actually use authenticity as the way that you not only have a big career, but most importantly, you do it without kind of selling out and having this compromise. And so um, the book is mostly sort of a a playbook and a teaching, uh, you know, kind of nonfiction. There's a little bit of memoir. So I have what I call well, I call personally, I don't, we don't call it in the book, but they're called memoir moments. So I do tell my story in short little snippets that are, you know, kind of funny. Uh, there's a lot of irony and I, I tell those throughout, but the primary guts of it is I teach what I call the six principles of strategic authenticity. And um, there's actually an acronym humans that stands for humility, unexpected, model, adapt, narrate and spark. 
And so what I actually talk about is within each of those, when we see somebody, we're like, oh, they are so authentic, right? Like we know, we know what we see it. Michelle Obama, right? Who, who would argue she's not, you know, sort of, especially when she was first, even now, not just when she was first lady, but in that context, there are things about them. They are not just a free willing be themselves like they would be at a pool party with their friends, right? Like there are certain key aspects and that's what I really put into this framework. Um, and I actually, um, within it, teach people how to consciously use it and then apply it in the workplace, right? So it's not just a like self-help, here's some new principles. It's very much a hands-on now, like here's some ways you can go. For example, narrate is about storytelling. So I really dive deep into, okay, what are the myths of telling stories in the workplace? Let's bust those. Let's, um, let's talk about creating your story inventory. Let's talk about applying it. So I kind of take this concept that's a little more woo-woo and, you know, in true Aaron fashion, I'm like, okay, like, let's, let's go to work, like enough of the woo-woo. Um, and, and so that's, that's the main guts of the book. But I also, so I talk the first part of the book, I talk about authenticity and kind of the business case for it. Um, and then the other key thing, I think for our listeners that I do before I talk about authenticity, even though it's this wonderful thing, and I say, you know, all the reasons you should do it. Um, before I do that, I talk about the sucky songs that we sing. And so part two is really first what I call priming. It's like, if you were going to take a bench and repurpose it, you know, it was in your basement, you wouldn't just go slap a bunch of paint on it, right? Like you got to sand it down. You've got to put some primer on it. Um, and what I find that with my target audience, which, you know, are largely, largely women, but not just women, but in their thirties to 45, 50 that are kind of always wanted a big career. And then between, you know, having families and then also seeing what it takes to kind of get to that leadership level, start to sing all kinds of sucky songs to themselves of why, you know, they're not good at politics. So they're just going to kind of stop here or, you know, they're not good enough for the job. So I also spend a lot of time from a mindset perspective, kind of getting you ready and primed for this new way of using authenticity um, as your career secret weapon. Awesome. It sounds like a fabulous book. I cannot wait to read it. Thank you. Now, one question that comes to mind for me when thinking about authenticity, are there limits that one should place on themselves and their authenticity with certain groups or various milieus? Yeah, that's probably the biggest question, right? Especially I get with um, the African-American community, the LGBTQI, or, or just anybody that's like, yeah, but I don't think people like my authentic self. And that's why I felt it was really important to put this framework in place and the A, adapt, is an important part of it. And what I say is, again, authenticity, actually, the way I define it, it's more about, it's not just being yourself, it's more about exposing who you are, kind of when people least expect it. And adapt is there because, you know, your primary output goal of being more authentic is to create better connections better connections, create better relationships, that like it, right? That, that is one of the primary goals, benefits, et cetera. And the reality is if none of us had the, the concept of adapting, you know, I use the plug analogy. Like if you were to fly over to France tomorrow and want to wake up for a meeting and pull out your blow dryer and look beautiful as heck, like you couldn't do it, right? You, you, you'd have, you'd have to have an adapter, right? Like, right. And so when I talk about the principles, I talk about, I, I talk about adapt in two ways, but the first way is that authenticity, again, is about um, a dial and it's about reading the room. Like, 
you know, there are places you get, you know, full on authentic Aaron. There are places, you know, I, I go into a private equity meeting, you get way more authenticity than you'd ever expect in that kind of meeting, but it's a dial, right? Like it, it's a, you want to understand what is, the, what is the authenticity of the other person? Now, you know, note, it, that doesn't mean if somebody else is like a stuck up asshole, you become a stuck up. No, it, <laughs> but it's about finding the way to like kind of plug into them and bring them along and open them up. And so, you know, I think that's really, really important because um, if we all just walked around and said, I'm just going to be over the frick I want to be, like we wouldn't plug into each other. And so that that plugging concept, um, I think, is is really an important part of, of the one of the parts of, of ADAPT in the model. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. I see people struggling with this a lot. You know, where do I fit in? How authentic can I be yeah. in this space? And I think we also probably did that growing up when we felt like we were in that box alone, like how much of us do they want to see? You know, so I think that's something that comes also with some wisdom. It, it does. And it's such a tough balance. And I'm not going to um, profess that, uh, you know, especially people, you know, of color, that, they, that it isn't harder for them to use this tool, right? I, I will never do that. But what I do believe in is it's the right answer. And how do we bridge that gap and how do we get there? And that's one of the reasons I believe so strongly in this book, because it dissects it further. It talks about it in a more nuanced and kind of powerful way. And I think if you can, no matter what race you are, background, personality, if you can then look at each of those principles and think about which ones do I start to dial up? Do I start to expose? Do I start to use? Do I start to experiment? Um, I had a woman on our podcast. She's a, an executive at a you know a major a global 500 company. Uh, she's their chief counsel for North America, a black woman. And we had this conversation and she talked about at her former company really of course, always having that mask on as so many black women have had to do. And, you know, you have to have the nice looking outfit and you, you know, you sort of have this facade. And she had a moment where, uh, you know, she had a new team and they're asking her some personal questions and her first, right. Like instinct was like, Whoa, like, I don't want to go there. Like, I don't go there. I wear this mask. And she started to realize that as she started to answer these, she saw the experiments play out in a positive way, right? Like she saw people connect with her. She saw, um, you know, want, people want to follow her more, et cetera, et cetera, results, whatever that was. And so as she was, she was heading to her next job, we actually talked kind of right around the time of her transition. She admitted that, you know, along the way she has started to see, especially as the way I define it and look for those signals and opportunities and, and just keep experimenting and building upon them and dialing them up. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Now, as we come to the end of the interview, what words of wisdom would you offer the listeners today? Yeah, so there's, there's so much, right? But one of the things that has really helped me is this 50% rule that I had both in the corporate space, but now I'm really applying it in the entrepreneurship space. And let me just talk about it. The 50% rule, as I mentioned in the corporate workspace was really my guide for whenever I took a new assignment, how can I make sure if, if it's 50, makes me 50% uncomfortable, that's how I start to catapult my career, right? Like that's how I know that I will keep moving, uh, you know, sort of exponentially. But as I've also 
gotten into the entrepreneurial world and, you know, I've always just sort of preached this 50% rule. I've actually started to apply it in a different way. And it's actually like, it's already the idea for, for book number two, because I see so many different applications. And what I mean by that is, you know, so often we learn things, um, no matter what your vocation profession is, for me, learning the new entrepreneurial space, how to write an email that people will open, like how to have a marketing strategy, big, small, right? You get so sucked into it. And I did for so long. And then I came up and I was like, I, why am I struggling? Why, why is either some of this stuff not working or I don't want to do it? And I finally got to the place where I was like, what if I applied the 50% rule? What if I just said, I'm going to learn from, you know, I'm not stupid. I'm going to learn from other people, but I'm always going to look at it through this lens of what, what half of it am I going to take in? What half of them am I going to leave behind or do it my own way? And at the end of the day, that's where innovation is born. If we all just kept following what everybody else is doing, right? We wouldn't have a new widget. We wouldn't have a new, um, you know, uh, way of doing things in marketing, et cetera. Um, and it's really freaked me up. And so I encourage people to sort of think about this 50% rule. Think of it as a way to continually innovate, whether it's moving in your career and getting uncomfortable or bucking the norm, but not everything and, and finding new ways to do things that that put you in your flow and have you making a contribution to the growth of everybody else that comes behind you. Well, thank you, Erin, for joining me on the Core Women podcast today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure to be here, Summer. Thank you. If you would like to connect with Erin, you can reach her at www.theauthenticinc.com and you can find out more about her on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you need a strategic empowerment coach, contact me. If you want to tell your story of empowerment or how you have reconstructed your life to drive change, send me a video or an email of your story providing permission to use it on my social media platforms. If you want to be featured on my podcast, reach out to me at info at corewomen.com. I want to hear from you and to get to know you. You are now part of the Core Women home. Let's get to know each other. Let's learn from one another. Please follow Core Women on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please let your women friends know about this podcast. If you write about core women in your social media posts, please hashtag core women. This is all about women. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about core women and please stay tuned for continued growth of the core women movement. Let's grow and drive change together.